and it asked me, if this is the next 30 years of your life, is this enough? And I heard that voice. It shocked me. I stopped and I really said, you know, I think I'm missing something. If I were to stay on this track, I would be alone, alone, alone. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular lightbulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. On the show, you're here from the trailblazers themselves as they tell their own before it happened story. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. My guest today has a story that is just perfect for this time of year. Genevieve Pichero is a visionary whose vision seems tailor-made for Thanksgiving. For 20 years, Genevieve worked in broadcasting, eventually becoming vice president of a large TV syndication company in New York City. But in the late 1990s, she decided to leave the corporate environment and launch a nonprofit that has changed the lives of millions of kids across the United States. Since officially launching in 2001, Genevieve's Pajama Program has delivered more than 7 million books and pajamas to children living in homeless shelters. Today, the program has expanded to include more than 63 chapters in the U.S. Genevieve also has recently embarked on a motivational speaking career and is the author of Purpose, Passion, and Pajamas, How to Transform Your Life, Embrace the Human Connection, and Lead with Meaning. Genevieve's story is one about giving, and specifically about giving back. This was truly an inspiring interview that feels even more relevant with the holidays upon us. Genevieve was born in a very traditional Italian-American family in Yonkers, New York. Her father immigrated from Southern Italy when he was 15 years old, and her mother's family came from Sicily. She was the oldest of three siblings and grew up in a strict household that she says was full of love, but also traditional gender-based expectations. She was expected to find a husband at a young age and start having a family. But Genevieve was more interested in following in the footsteps of her idol, Mary Tyler Moore. In the 1970s, she was the very image of female empowerment and Genevieve wanted to be just like her. Not necessarily the actress, but the character she played on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Mary Tyler Moore, as I got a little older, I think that was what really cemented being a corporate girl. I wanted what she had. She was making her way in a big city. For her, it was Minneapolis. For me, it was New York. And she was a female in the entertainment business. I went into TV marketing and she was single. I was single. She had her own apartment. I wanted my own apartment. I got my own apartment. And she had a great best friend named Rhoda. My best friend was named Robin. So I looked for the R. (laughs) 
And I always wanted to wear the beautiful clothes she was wearing. So that was my role model. Yeah, she was a little uptown in her apartment in her clothes. Was your apartment as nice as Mary Tyler Moore's? <laughs> well, of course, I like to think so. But it never could measure up to everything Mary had, her apartment, her clothes, her friends, her life, you know, her Mr. Grant. But I loved my life. And she was definitely an influence but then the next part of my story goes back to what I saw in Jerry Lewis and, and the kids he helped and that marathon. So you go to Fordham University. Did you write on your application that you wanted to be Mary Tyler Moore? <laughs> what was your degree that you studied in communications? Or? Yes, Bachelor of Arts in Communications, yes. Excellent. So that's when you really dig into your profession. And tell me a little bit about your curriculum. Was it traditional journalism and broadcast or, or were you, was it liberal arts and communications? Describe your journey in college and, and any type of special milestones that are important. Well, first, I wanted to go away to college. Again, independence. And my parents forbid it. So the small group of colleges that I had to choose from, I visited and I loved Fordham. So I loved the community. I loved being on a campus and I wanted to live there. Again, my parents didn't want me to. They wanted me to commute now 15 minutes away, but they were really traditional. They didn't know why I'd want to leave the family nest when I could drive to school every day. But I wanted to be, you know, I wanted the whole experience. So they resisted and resisted and resisted. And I pushed and pushed and pushed. And they actually went to see our local priest to say, why does our daughter want to leave the nest? And the priest was pretty fair, and he told them it has nothing to do with her wanting to leave you. She just wants to spread her wings. And they finally gave in, and they had to come and see the dorm, and it was an all-girls dorm, so that was okay. And I had a female roommate, so that was okay. So I got to live there. And once I lived there, I discovered WFUV radio station. It is a 50,000-watt radio station, which is huge, bigger than a lot of New York stations. And it was student run. It's not any longer. So those of us who joined and took engineering tests and passed and all of that, we had the run of the 24 hours that FUV was on the air. And it was amazing because I didn't realize that I had a radio voice. So I was chosen to host an, a public affairs show on Saturday mornings where I could choose the guest and interview them. And it was always about community, somebody doing something in the community. It didn't have to be nonprofit, but of course it included nonprofit work and local entrepreneurs and issues that we faced in New York. It was incredible. It was so wonderful. I, and I also did some engineering and it was the people that were in the radio business were just to me so cool. So being a nerd to me, that was like just branching out into the cool world. I loved it. And I did that for the four years I was at Fordham. So what was the name of the show? Aware. At the time, you were still not aware that your calling had anything to do with any of this activity. No, but it's amazing how when you look back, you can see the thread. Yeah, that's great. So you're in college. Did you do internships? I did. I did one for CBS TV New York. And I worked on the segment with Bess Meyerson. She was Miss America, the first Miss America. And she did consumer reports, again, serving people with investigative reporting on products and things that would 
affect consumers, consumers choosing things. And I worked with her and her team going out to shoot different stories and really, you know, just a gopher, but it was exciting. So you're doing your internships. Now you're getting your real taste of the industry. Did that just kind of like push you even more to want to pursue your career and be Mary Tyler Moore? Yes, it did. And what happened was when I graduated, I started to call up, like we all did, places where we wanted to work. And because of my four years in radio and doing a good job, I called all the New York radio stations. And now this is a while ago, so it was easy to find the phone number and to call and get a real person. And at one station, the woman put me right through to the news director. And this was WINS Radio in New York, 1010 News. And the news director took my call and we talked for like over half an hour, which was very odd. And he just kept asking me questions, asking me questions. And finally, he said, I've kept you on because you have a very good radio voice. And WYNS is doing a pilot program called News Phone. And 24 hours, there's going to be a phone number any New Yorker can call. And they will get one minute of the top news. And I'd like to offer you the midnight till 8 a.m. shift. And it was at Group W which Group W Productions was owned by Westinghouse, which owned WYNS News. So they had the studio set up at their TV offices at 90 Park in New York City. So I would go there and midnight till eight, I would record a minute of news every half hour. And because there was no one there and there was it was a TV office, there were TVs. And believe it or not, from 2 a.m. to 3.30 a.m., they had reruns of Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I mean, it was like my dream in those wee hours. And oftentimes, you know, it's so loud to hear it. You think you hear an elevator. You think you hear footsteps. Literally all alone. It was comforting. And, of course, just kept reminding me to stay on that track. And when News Phone, which was a pilot, they decided it wasn't working very well. So after almost a year, I was leaving every morning between eight and nine. My shift was over and the TV people were coming in. So I got to be friendly with them and they always wondering, what are you doing overnight? And I told them about my TV aspirations and I was hired. Well, let's talk a minute about something that I also experienced and, and I hear it from you too, is that when we have to make choices as women, if we want a career, then you just got to put all your poker chips on the table. And when you take time off, it can actually hurt you. And so I've never been able to have what I call balance. I call it agility. I mean, you needed to make choices as well. But did you find that you had to make a clear-cut choice? It was either your career or it's uh, the traditional route that your family was advocating. How challenging was that for you? I went full-on for the corporate world. I was single. I was a workaholic. I had my sights set on a great office and a great position. It was all I wanted. So I never thought about it until 12 years in, I had that aha moment. But for 12 years, I really enjoyed my life. I can't say there was a problem with it because I wasn't aware. I was just on a track and all my friends were. And the group that I was now keeping company with were all headed in the same direction. So when we went out, it was always work-related. And, you know, when we traveled, we traveled for the business. 
and just kept rolling. I just let it. I just let it have a life of its own. So what's the highest position where you were? You were a vice president, senior vice president? I was vice president of marketing for a couple of television syndication companies in New York. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was hard work. It was 12 years, but I, I was all in. I was all in and it was clear to everyone that I was all in. My parents finally got used to it. And then they had my sister and my brother having kids. So they were busy. And they got used to me being on my own. I did not move home after college, which was an issue. They expected me to, but I said, I can't. I've come this far. I really want to be on my own and I want to see if I can do it. But they got used to the working girl for me and they came around. So you're at the height of your career and then you have made this decision. And I want to clarify, was it Katrina or was it just your desire to volunteer? Which came first? Well, I had a moment, in a quiet moment, just in my apartment. I don't know why or what came before, but I heard a question asked by me to me in my, now I call it the heart voice, and it asked me, if this is the next 30 years of your life, is this enough? And I heard that voice and it shocked me. I stopped and I really said, you know, I think I'm missing something. It was like an avalanche in a moment of an awakening, memories of what my parents had said and things that I didn't think were important. And I just evaluated in seconds and minutes that if I were to stay on this track, I would be alone, alone, alone. And I wanted to know what was missing. And I immediately remembered a recent news spot on children that were taken out of harm's way from a family or a caregiver who wasn't caring for that child. And it was horrific. And of course, newspapers that talk about all the situations children are in and these emergency shelters. And I just thought, I wonder if I could visit with those children and just be there in those shelters. I wonder what that's like. Maybe I could do that. Now, this literally happened in a day and it was profound and it was frightening and I could make no sense of it, but I paid attention. And later I realized that that voice must've been trying to come out and I just never had a quiet time and could hear it. So I thought, let me see if I can volunteer. Maybe this is something I need to do on the side. Maybe it's just a temporary illusion of something that I could do on a long-term basis. Maybe I'm just missing family right now or something. So I did call up police and ask them about these kids and where they take them. And they told me where. And there are city-run shelters and, and things for families or in worst case scenarios where the children are waiting to be processed. And I hate that word. So I called and asked if I could come and read at night. And back then, it was easier than it is now to get the okay. And they okayed me. I went in and I sat on the floor I was in my business suit. I had some books and it was a very bare room, no place I could sit. So I sat on the floor and they brought the children in. That night and the nights that followed were the most grounding, most still times I'd had in years. And I felt connected to something bigger. And I certainly felt compassion and a connection with these children who had been through so much. And I didn't have to know the stories, I could see it on their faces. So you talk about that as your heart voice. Can you describe exactly what 
that heart voice is? Yes. Sometimes we get a feeling of maybe when you see a puppy or when you see a kitten, when you're with a child and they say something that is just so beyond what you think a child can imagine or can say, and you just have this feeling like, oh my goodness, that was so real. And it touches you in such a deep place. And that's what it felt like. It wasn't chatter. I know what chatter is. We all know it's it's chatter. It's noise. It's fast paced. It's like, and this was not that. This was a voice that came in the stillness, a low voice. And it just felt like when you see something that just takes your breath away. And it was that deep. I can picture my apartment, but I don't know if I can't tell you if I was sitting or standing, but I sat soon after because I started to think about it and it was just surreal. And because I was sitting there by myself, there wasn't a distraction. So I was just in that moment. That's great. Well, I know Oprah calls it the aha moment. There's other people call it your life path, but I actually can relate and get that little heart voice because I do feel what you described is a little bit like a, your instincts are telling me that something bigger is about to happen, right? So let's talk about that first book reading. Do you remember the name of the book? No, but I know that I bought popular ones. I know I bought Goodnight Moon. I probably bought Fairy Tales because that's what my mom read us. I probably brought Cinderella and I probably brought all the ones that girls like. And I, I'm sure I mixed it up with ones boys like. So I just bought the popular ones that I that I was familiar with the titles. And how frequently did you go to these readings? I started once a week and then I went twice a week and then I went a lot. I went a lot after work. So instead of working until nine o'clock at night, I was on the clock and I would run out of there as soon as I could, five o'clock and get on the subway with my bag of books and go down to wherever I was going to be reading. Did that become like the highlight of your week was those readings? Yes, it became my peace and my moments where I was really in touch with myself and with other people. And I just missed them. I just wanted to sit with them. I can't explain it, but maybe it's like a mom feeling, you know, when they have little ones, can't wait to get back from work to spend time with them. What's well, a little bit of the, the communal component? Like you, you come from a family with strong family values and I want to say tradition, in a lot of ways, you're bringing that same quality into these kids that might not have that, right? So you're volunteering. Let's talk about the pajamas. When did the pajamas enter the scenario? That was another aha moment. So I would bring the books and I would sit on the floor and I'd read to the, the children. And one night, for some reason, when they stood up to go to their where they were going to sleep at night, and I stood up to leave, I wanted to see where they were going to sleep, so I followed. And I peered into that room, which broke my heart, because it was just as bare as where I'd been sitting with them reading. There were just futons and couches and children, sometimes more than one up on a surface, and some of them were crying. Their clothes, for the most part, were soiled or didn't fit well. And sometimes there was something that was at the shelter that fit them that could change into, sometimes not. And I'm watching this scene and, and I'm realizing that they're going to sleep in their clothes. And as the staff were going to walk me to the door, I turned and I said, do you think I could bring pajamas next week? Because I had the memories rushed to me of my mom and our bedtime, which was 
so loving and fun. And, you know, we got snacks and story after story and kisses and hugs and pajamas, of course. You know, that was a no brainer. Of course, we had pajamas. And I didn't see that. And for some reason, that came out of my mouth. And the staff said, oh, that'd be lovely. I remember her saying it. Oh, that'd be so lovely. And so I brought pajamas and I was so excited all week because I didn't want to leave any of the children out because I never knew who'd be there. And they were, they were always different, very fluid population. So I just bought so many pairs of pajamas and I brought them. And then I read to the children and I knew what I had in the bags that the staff were putting out on the tables. And I told the kids that I had a special surprise for them after I finished my story. And one by one, I started giving out the pajamas to the children. And one little girl standing, I had them stand in a line halfway through. She must have been five or six. She came up to like my hip and she had lopsided ponytails and she had on huge sneakers and a top that was a little dirty. It was purple and pants that were really short. We called them floods. And I presented this pretty pair of pink pajamas to her. And I said, honey, these are your pajamas. And she just shook her head, no, 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 no. She just kept saying no, no, and shaking her head. And I was shocked. And I said, these are for you. You can have these. These are your pajamas. And she said again, no, no, no. She was so afraid. And I didn't want to force her. So I continued with the other kids, but she wanted to watch me. So instead of taking her back to the other room to sleep, they let her stay and watch me. And they stayed, a staff person stayed next to her. And she watched me give them out. And then I said, okay, here's my chance. Nobody's around. Let me try one more with, with her. She's standing with her staff. Maybe she'll be comfortable. So I went over. I knelt down. I still had the pink pajamas I wanted to give her. And I told her how soft they were. And I said, do you want to touch them? They're so soft. And they're going to fit you. I can tell they're your size. You're going to sleep so well, so comfortable. Don't you want your pajamas? And she whispered to me, what are pajamas? What are they? She could hardly say the word pajamas. She said, what are they? What are pajamas? The good thing I was kneeling. I didn't think I heard her right. I didn't know what to say. It was surreal. And I had to explain pajamas to this little girl. And I didn't want to cry. I didn't want her to think she did something wrong. And I explained pajamas to her. And she took them. And they took her to put them on. And and I was ready to leave. And I saw her turn to find me. And she saw me. And she smiled. And she was wearing them. And that was it. That was it. Life the way I knew it. Corporate life as my career just went out the window. And I was obsessed with getting children like her pajamas along with the books. Well, now that this happened, where do you go from back to work, doing your job and the balance then? Like, when did you decide that you were just, this is going to turn into an official calling versus something you were just doing a couple of days a week? Well, I didn't feel like I decided. It just felt like it took over and it wasn't a conscious decision because I just became obsessed. And I did have to think about keeping my job because I had to pay the mortgage because I there was no way I saw how giving pajamas to kids was going to pay for my food. But I didn't really make a plan. I just followed my heart. I write about it in a, my book that I wrote because it's really journey of self-reflection and you come to terms with every decision you've made up till then, what's important to you, what's led you to the decision, and where do you go from here? And I'm honest about the ups and downs. Now, at this time, I wasn't married. I I didn't want to be married, but 
at this time, I just before I'd met a really nice guy and I thought, well, I'm thinking about it now. If he was thinking about it, I was thinking about it. And I thought I'd better tell him that I'm thinking about or rethinking this corporate career because he thinks I'm a career girl and I don't want to get in too deep. And then he finds out. So I said, let me just try out what it would sound like, which sounded absurd when I rehearsed it to myself. I'm thinking about leaving my corporate job because I want to bring pajamas and reach his children in shelters. And that even to me now sounds so silly. <laughs> and his response was, go for it. So I knew this was the guy for me. So that helped me think I wasn't crazy because I really thought I was crazy. And I had broached the subject with a friend, also a corporate girl, and she just took me apart. And good thing we were having a glass of wine because I was so upset. She just kept asking me questions. Why would you do that? You've worked so hard. How are you going to pay your rent? Can't you just do this once in a while on the side? What do you think you're really giving these kids? It's nothing. It's a pair of pajamas. You're not you know, changing their lives. You're not building a house or giving them food. And I was like, boom, boom, boom. And I really felt beat up because I didn't have any answers. And I didn't tell anybody. And I didn't know what to do. So it just kept rolling along. and I kept letting it overtake my life. And then I got into trouble at work. You know, I would have been fired if I didn't finally leave. I tried every which way. I tried taking contract work. I just couldn't say no to the request to visit, to bring pajamas. And I had to leave early because I had to go shopping every day. Well, you know, people respond, they don't listen, right? Her values were, her career-based values were being challenged probably, right? And you think about it, it's just because it's like, oh, no, Genevieve, you're pushing me out of my comfort zone. I don't think I can handle this. Like, have another glass of wine, right? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't even stay for dinner. I had to leave, Donna. I was just so upset. Well, and then getting fired was a result because you needed to spend more dedicated time for the cause. Yes, yes. I would have been fired because I was really messing up. And they couldn't understand because I hid this. I put the pajamas and books and things in a suitcase. I said I was going here, I was going there. And I was hiding things out. And I was hiding my cell phone, which at that point was like a shoebox. And you couldn't answer it. Now you can go to work with your cell phone and you know you can take your calls or whatever or be discreet. But there, at that time, it wasn't allowed. So I was sneaking and, and I really thought, and I, in my book, I call it Leave Juggling for the Clowns. I really thought I was doing a good job hiding all this. Well, today you can actually go to work in your pajamas because people during the <laughs> pandemic are not yes. always getting dressed. So it's totally changed. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I know I get teased about it now. Yes. So did you leave work and get married and then the Pajama Project Accelerate or what was the order of? No, I, I was still working and I got married but I was doing this. So my new husband was very patient because the vows were partner, partner, partner. And I wasn't because I was hardly there, you know, emotionally, or even when he was talking to me, my mind was not on what he was saying. It was on my next steps with my pajamas. And he's a very spiritual guy. So he was good at helping me figure out, listening to my hard voice and following my heart and trying to find a way to marry my head and my heart and being as supportive as he could. We only had one car 
and now no family has one car, not even a couple of the, everybody has their own car. So we had to share the car or basically I had to hijack the car every chance I got or beg him to do some of my deliveries. So I wasn't really living up to my vows of being a partner. It was a strain. It was very difficult. And he had a lot of patience, but I pushed the limit and maxed out my credit cards. So I was not very responsible. I have to stand by that. I made a choice. I was just doing so much, trying to keep the job and trying to get as many pajamas and and books to kids so I didn't have to ever say no, that I was irresponsible. And so I just maxed out my credit cards. What happened was, thankfully, every time I got brave enough to tell the story, because obviously at some point I had to, I needed help. People were more than willing to help. They were more than willing to get me pajamas and to buy their own new pajamas and books and give them to me or help me deliver them. Anything that I needed help, they wanted to help me do. And somebody called from a national magazine and said, hi, I'm so-and-so from Parenting Magazine. Are you the lady delivering pajamas to kids in Harlem? And I said, well, yeah, that's one of the places I I go. And she said, can I write a little article, just a small article? So I said, sure. Well, she did. And it happened to come out not too long after 9-11. Now, in New York, right after 9-11, for a couple of years, we couldn't do enough for each other. We were in it together. It was this awful enemy that took away freedom for however long until we could feel that we had it back. And we just would have done anything for each other. So when this little article came out, everyone's heart opened and thousands of boxes and thousands of envelopes came to my little one-bedroom co-op in the Bronx. I remember we had a doorman. He was so upset, yelling and screaming. He thought I started a business. Nobody knew what it was. I didn't even know what was in all these packages. And he threw them in the elevator and up and down, up and down. He would fill the elevator and send it back up. My husband came home. He did the same thing, yelling at my husband, filling up the elevator, up and down, up and down. We had thousands of these in our one bedroom. I mean, piled high. And we didn't know what was going on. And when we got most of them in, we started opening them. And every one of them was, read the article, here's $5. Read the article, please give these pajamas to a little girl. Read the article, can you read this story to a little a little child? They just couldn't do enough. And we cried and we opened it. It was cash and notes. And one letter said, If you can send us your 501c3, we'd love to give you a grant. And I looked at my husband and I said, what is this thing? 501c in parentheses three? He had no idea. Well, I realized that it was no longer something I was doing alone. It was a responsibility. All these people were bent on helping me get these pajamas to the kids. And and I had to do it. I had to do it. And I had to find an orderly way to do it and make it a real thing, a legitimate thing. So found out 501c3 means you're a nonprofit. It's legal and it's a process. And I was on the way and I I had to figure that out and get it done. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's your chosen moment, right? (laughs) You you. (laughs) Unbelievable. I said, it's not a choice. It's a responsibility now. How far after that was your interview with Oprah? Six years later, after working and working and finally 
going to part-time and finally taking that leap. My husband said, I'll do whatever I can to help. And I said, and so will I, I'll work at McDonald's if I have to. And got a call one afternoon. I was sitting by myself and the woman said, I'm so-and-so from the Oprah Winfrey show. Do you have a minute? And, <laughs> you know, half of me was like screaming up and down. This is the Oprah show. And the other half was saying, stay calm, answer the questions. And at least I did that. I answered the questions and I was calm and I didn't tell anyone. And for about two weeks, she called every day, every other day with some more questions. I answered them all calmly, not telling anyone because the last thing you want to do, right, is say they called, but they didn't choose me. And I was not going there. So finally, after a couple of weeks of questions, she said, we're going to book you. And I said, can I tell my husband? And she said, you haven't told him? And I hadn't. And I did. And that was March 2007. And I flew there. And there's a ton of stories. If you have days, I could fill your ears with so many stories. What she didn't know was that Oprah's producers had hatched a plan to donate more than 32,000 pairs of pajamas to Genevieve's organization. In true Oprah fashion, the gift came as a complete surprise. And all of a sudden, Genevieve needed a place to put all of those pajamas until they had a home. So now you need a warehouse. So you're a nonprofit, and where are all these pajamas housed? Well, somehow you know what happened because, yes, that's what happened. But we needed a warehouse. I went to the show with my husband and made arrangements for my mom to travel with a woman that was helping me, Terry. So they came on their own, met us there. And after this whole reveal and after the show, Oprah's producers took us around to see all the places the pajamas were hiding and everyone wanted to say hello because apparently nobody slept. They were all the pajamas were coming in FedEx and UPS and Oprah had arranged all that for the reveal on the stage. And there were still so many backstage it couldn't fit on the stage. So anyway, that's exactly what Terry and I were saying. Oh my goodness, because then the producer said, when you get back after you land, email me the address you want to be sent to. And the whole flight, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, who can I call that has space? Who can I call and beg for a warehouse? When we got off the plane, there was a message from the producer. Oprah said, give us the list of where you want them to go in your name, pajama program, and we will send all the pajamas to the kids. And they did. And all the places that knew me and knew us and knew pajama program, all were elated to get Harpo boxes. And they were going to keep those Harpo boxes forever because they were part of the show. So let's talk about your journey. Really, your book, Purpose, Passion, and Pajamas, is summarizes that journey that you didn't even know that you were on. So what inspired you to now take the time, because it's a long time to write a book, to take your wisdom and then apply it to your book so that you can inspire others? And I kept thinking, you need to have your own brand of pajamas. <laughs> I can actually see purpose, passion, and pajamas meetups, you know, with, with people getting together. But how did you carve out the time and, and why a book versus podcast TV show? Or is there a TV show in production on you? I'd love that. The reason that I'm here is at this point is because all those 20 years of being founder and executive director, I told the story. And 
people told me their stories and people asked what they could do. They knew what their purpose was or they didn't know, but they wanted a purpose. They wanted to find it and they wanted to change a career from a traditional one or the one that they thought that they had chosen to something that they really wanted now to choose. So that was very, very important to me because it changes so much. Not only were we helping these children, I prayed every night that I was helping these children. It was also giving so many supporters, so many people who heard the story and told the story giving them purpose. And it banded us together and people rallied for these kids. It was an amazing experience, still is, to meet people who who have a story to tell me about their personal lives, their bedtime, their children's bedtime. And in all these years, you know, I realized in the first memories I flooded back about my mom's pajamas, it's not about the pajamas or the material. It's about everything that it means, the comfort, the love, the security, that foundation my mom gave me and moms and caregivers give these children that they'd be there in the morning. And no matter what happens during the day, they'll be there. And it's just a security. And that's what it is wrapped up in pajamas. And pajama program today is, you know, good nights or good days. I always thought, how could these children get any sleep coming from where they'd come from and not knowing what would happen tomorrow? That was always haunting me. So it's bigger than the pajamas. And I didn't know that at the start. I just thought it was something simple I could manage. But really, it was bigger. And people showed that to me. And people wanted to know how they could find purpose. And one of the lessons in my book, I thought, who's lucky to get a purpose? There are lucky people who get a purpose. The rest of us aren't lucky. You know, the famous people, you know, the Oprahs or the Einsteins or anybody that changes the world they were given this gift. They were lucky. And it's not the power of one. You know, we all say, oh, the power of one. And people even said it to me, but it's not. And I've learned it's not the power of one that changes things. It's the power of one another that moves mountains and moves people. And that's what I want to share. I want people to know they have that power to spark a movement, to make change by sharing their story from the heart and that's what purpose and passion are. They're, they're from your heart. And we're all the lucky ones. I love that. You know, you talk about these couple of different things that impacted 9-11, right? And we just had the, another anniversary of that. And it's still ominous. And then you had Katrina. And then you, we have this last year and a half of the, the pandemic. Each one of these, these types of milestones just trigger that I think a lot of people just kind of stand back and say, you know, what can I do differently? What's important to me? And what do I value? But active service and spending time and giving back is something that a lot of school programs are now putting as part of the curriculum, which I think is great. Are you getting kids that have been part of the program and recipients of pajamas coming back and now volunteering and being part of this, of the program and giving back as well? Yeah, it's helping kids and the older kids, yes. A few years ago, just before actually the pandemic, when I was planning the book and the speaking about not just pajama program, but the story and the purpose piece for everyone, I went to our board and I said, I've been trying to write this book and I really wanted to do this. And I think the best way for me to serve is to talk about purpose and write my book and speak using the pajama program story, but I don't want the salary. So let's hire an executive director and I'll find my own way. And we did. And she's great. And she's taking pajama program. I say, taking my baby to college. And then the pandemic hit right then. So 
I knew that there was a reason that book would come out in the pandemic and you nailed it. People have been going inward and have been trying to answer those questions that you just put on the table. What choices have I made? Is this my life? Is there something I can do differently? Some being forced to think about it, some volunteering to change. And it's been a mixed time for everyone. And those looking for purpose and for people like me who didn't expect to work like this. So it's strange, but it's comforting that I'm able to talk about finding purpose at a time when more people than ever are looking for purpose. So tell me a little bit more about what's next. If you kind of look at some other great women leaders, there's a couple of things that you're, you know, you're one part like Mother Teresa really giving and creating a movement, right? And then there's another part of you that's still very structured. And I love the book because it it is a guide, you know, like a life book for success for those who, you know, might want to just amplify what they're doing, but really looking forward to have more purpose. And so I think the intersection of both of those things just put you back out there. I mean, it's like Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, you are the it girl, right? Because you've done so much. And what's next? An international program? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm anxious as we all are to get back out in person. There's energy there that is just impossible to feel technically, electronically. It's face-to-face with people. Now we're doing it in a limited way and in a safe way, but it's not the same. So I'm excited to just be able to come to that day and do what I'm doing and and do the author talks and, and talk about purpose and meet with people and continue to mentor and coach, maybe write another book. But I want to do it after 18 months behind a screen. I want to do it in person. And I think then I'll see where naturally it takes me. Yeah, I think we're we're all thirsty to have that engagement and human interaction. Your story, you know, is so inspiring, but I don't think you even realize what you're tapped into. It sounds like it's just going to be another big explosion for you. I hope so. I mean, I don't know what gene it is that I have that I keep jumping into these new things, it would be, it'd be a lot easier on my pocketbook and, and my brain if I was to stay with on one track longer than I do. But I think you're right. I think there's a lot we can do even more now than there was 18 months ago. I think that there's so much more awareness and everybody has to buy in to being more compassionate, being more patient, being more understanding because everybody wants to feel fulfilled at work, not just when they leave work. And it's going to take all of us to really create that kind of a culture and that atmosphere that feeds all of us. That was Genevieve Pertura. She says she's always been surprised by how much she realized she needed something like the pajama program in her life. At first, she just wanted to be of service, but she quickly realized that she was feeling a void in her own life that she had failed to notice on her way up corporate ladder. Now she says her new goal is to inspire people to find their real purpose wherever they may be in their lives. And that's an important caveat to highlight. We may think we know our passion or purpose when we are very young, only to find out later that we were wrong. Some of us may not find it until much later in life. But thinking about Genevieve's story, the point is the wind doesn't matter. Some journeys take longer than others, but the journey is what counts. 
Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.